Please be seated. Um, on the way in, somebody said to me, are, uh, are you ready to preach? <laughs> I thought, I've never actually been ready to preach, uh, but the Holy Spirit is always ready. So let's go to him and ask for his help before we read and preach God's word. Lord, I, I thank you that you are the living and true God, and that you're a God who speaks. Indeed, Jesus Christ is the Word. You are a God who reveals himself. We're not left wondering and wandering about who you are and how, you, uh, how we ought to live before you, that you have made yourself clearly known in the Word, and we are here because we want to know you. And so we pray, oh Lord, I pray that you would, despite my own flaws and my own weaknesses, you would bless your people through the ministry of the Word, that the Spirit would work powerfully as the Word is read and preached, that we might adore the Lord Jesus all the more. Father, we thank you that we have such confidence that when we ask, you will answer. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 2? So I think we're, this is around our ninth or tenth sermon in John. We finally made it through chapter 1. Uh, congratulations. Um, and we will continue moving, Lord willing, until we finish this book a couple of years from now. But we're looking at John 2. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses. Uh, we've already seen in chapter 1 what's called the prologue of John's gospel. Now that was, in my defense, we move so slowly because that is some of the densest theology in all of Scripture, that Jesus is the Word of God, that He is the Son of God incarnate. Uh, we learned about John the Baptist, we learned about Jesus calling his disciples. Today, we're going to see as Jesus does his first public miracle. This is John 2, starting at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. There is something, it's a phenomenon known as the Dunning-Kruger effect, and that is that as soon as you start to learn a little bit about something, you think you know everything about that thing. But then you start to learn more about it and you realize how little you actually know. This is the kind of stuff sociologists study about. I think the Dunning-Kruger effect is in full effect in this passage. 
everyone knows the story that I just read. I, I would suspect even, even those who may not have grown up in church uh, have heard the story of Jesus turning water into wine. Everyone knows this story, and yet I think most people don't really know this story at all. They know that Jesus turned water into wine, but Jesus' miracles are simple stories, simple historical facts that are intended to teach profound spiritual truths. In fact, in in verse 11, John says this was the first, not miracle, but he says sign. Signs intend to point to something else. We need to remember that all throughout John's gospel is, it's a very, he, John writes in a very simple way, and yet everything is more profound than we think it is. Uh, that's why St. Augustine, 1600 years ago, said that the gospel of John is shallow enough for a child to swim and deep enough, uh, deep enough for an elephant to drown. There's the surface level stuff here that children learn in their Sunday school classes. And then as they grow up in Christ, as we pray that they will, they should start to learn more and more about these same stories they've always heard. So for example, John chapter 6. We see another of Jesus' most famous miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. But if you stop there, you miss the point, which was what he taught afterwards in what's known as the bread of life discourse. And Jesus gives one of the most theologically rich explanations of salvation in the whole gospel. If you just stop at the miracle, you miss the lesson behind it. Or the story of Lazarus, very cool story, right? I would love to see that. Lazarus being raised from the dead. But Lazarus wasn't the point. The point is that Jesus himself is life. And that's why he says to Martha in verses 25 and 26 of John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Lazarus was not the point. The point is that in Jesus Christ, we find true life. Well, well, likewise, in this miracle, there is so much more going on here than just Jesus turning water into wine. It makes me think of, and I'm sure I'll reference this many times throughout John's gospel, but the scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Lucy sees Aslan. Aslan's the lion in the story. And she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan says to her, that's because you're older. I've not grown. You have. As we grow as Christians, Jesus ought to grow more and more in our eyes so that these stories, which once maybe as children amuse us, as adults would amaze us. And that's the purpose of these teachings, is that we would be increasingly amazed by Christ and we would trust more and more in him. What we're going to see behind the story of the water turning into wine is the power of of Jesus Christ to change life from one that is empty to one that is overflowing into boundless joy. That's what this miracle is all about. It's it's the bounding, leaping, joyous story of what happens inside of us when we come to know Jesus Christ. There's two things I want you to see this morning. We're going to see the situation and the explanation. And if you're wondering, well, where's the application? The application is going to be sprinkled throughout, but the end of the sermon is really going to carry us straight to the Lord's Supper. So I didn't want to have the application at the end like I normally do. So first, the situation. 
What's going on here? There's a wedding in an area known as Cana. We met Nathaniel last week, and Cana was his hometown. It seems that Jesus and his family have connections there as well because he and his disciples go to this wedding, and his mother uh, goes as well. Uh, Weddings were grand festivities in those days, hosted by the groom and his family, often lasting all week. Uh, And so that means that hosting a wedding wasn't simply a matter of putting on an event so that the guest would be entertained. It was really about hospitality, making sure the guests uh, had all that they needed. It was about meals and accommodations. I hope you as a church understand the difference between entertaining and hospitality. Entertaining is about impressing guests with yourself, with your house, with your cooking skills, all that stuff. Hospitality is about welcoming them into your home, meeting their needs, caring for them. And, and, and as a church, we need to know the difference between those two things. Because some of you are here this morning and you might meet a visitor and, and you might uh, have opportunity to invite them for lunch. That's what hospitality would be, welcoming in somebody you don't know, welcoming in the stranger. Well, entertainment is the devil on the other shoulder saying, ah, you don't have anything very fancy for them. All you have is a can of soup and your house is sort of a mess. So take a pass on this one. As Christians, we ought to be always showing hospitality to one another. Well, the actual wedding ceremony itself took place late in the evening following a feast. After the ceremony, the bride and the groom would be transported uh, to their home in a torchlight parade so that people all throughout the town uh, could, could uh, wish them well. And then instead of a honeymoon, they held an open house for a week where people would stop by and bring them gifts. They would actually oftentimes wear crowns, um, and it was, sort of, it was their week. And you can imagine in a difficult land, in, a, in an area with a lot of poverty, this was really the high point of a person's life, was to have this wedding celebration. And of course, as is often the case, we can place so much emphasis on the wedding, we don't quite think enough about the marriage. But of the two, being prepared for marriage is far more important than being prepared for a wedding. Marriage is a good gift designed by a good God for the flourishing of his people. You know, the most tragic thing about our culture's rebellious efforts to redesign marriage and redefine marriage is to think that anybody could come up with a better gift, a better design for marriage than what God has given us in marriage. It assumes that we are smarter than God, that we are more gracious and generous than God, and we can come up with something better than this good gift God has given There is nothing better in this world than a marriage that follows God's design. And I don't simply mean one man, one woman for life. That is God's design, certainly, but it's more than that. A truly biblical marriage is one in which husbands will love their wives with the soft, tender compassion that Jesus loves his church with. See that in Ephesians 5. A biblical marriage, a good and healthy biblical marriage, is the kind in which wives feel secure in the headship, the leadership of their husbands, so that it is a privilege to be called their helpmate. There's nothing better than that kind of marriage, this side of glory. And what truly dignifies weddings is that marriage as designed by God carries with it the blessing of God. Think about this. Jesus does his first public miracle at a wedding. You, if you've been to, to weddings that use some of the traditional uh, liturgies of, of English weddings, they might say, 
Jesus dignified marriage by doing his first miracle at a wedding. Indeed, he would not have attended a wedding if marriage were not a good thing, if it were not a blessing. But we know it's a creation ordinance. It's something that God has built into society for the flourishing, not just of one man and one woman, but for all of mankind. A society is never healthy, and true religion never flourishes unless we understand the dignity of human marriage as God has designed it and ordained it according to the Scriptures. And so our Lord's presence here at this wedding shows the dignity of marriage. Let me make an application here. If our Lord's presence at a wedding dignifies marriage, is that not also true of his children? As believers, we are sons and daughters of the Most High King. And so when you attend a wedding, your presence there as children of the Most High God dignifies the institution of marriage as well. You not only represent your family here on earth when you attend a wedding, but you represent your extended heavenly family, including even the Lord Jesus. Let that sink in. Your presence at a wedding dignifies the institution of marriage. So let's get very practical with this. What does this mean if you, dear ones, are invited to a so-called same-sex wedding? And I say so-called because that is not a wedding. You cannot create something or recreate something that God has already created, give it the same name he has used, but it'd be something totally different. And so I have to say so-called wedding if you're invited to a so-called same-sex wedding, should you go? That's an emotionally complex question for many believers, because this might involve a family member. It might involve your own children. It's not an easy decision. Can a Christian attend a same-sex wedding? There's a mentality that says Christians can attend same-sex weddings without actually giving approval to the act a pastor for whom I have a tremendous amount of respect, who has been faithful for many years uh, this very week, said it is acceptable for a Christian to do so, as long as the couple knows where you stand on the issue. They know that you don't agree with them. He said it is okay to go. And then I thought about that. Well, it doesn't just matter whether the couple knows where you stand on that issue. It's everybody at the wedding. So do you go up to everybody and say, hey, I'm Alex Mark. I'm glad to be here. Now, I don't approve, but I'm glad to be here. That's not reasonable to do. I respect this pastor tremendously, but in this case, I I would humbly say he's wrong. You see, your presence at that wedding is an act of approval. You are witnesses to it. The pastor generally will ask, if anybody knows any reason these two should not be wed, well, you have a moral obligation to say yes. I know of a reason they should not be wed because this is not biblically allowable. This is an abomination before God. And so for you to attend a wedding is to give your seal of approval to it. That's why weddings are public events. And so that witnesses may see this covenant that is being made. And so for you to attend a same-sex wedding is actually to give approval. It's your stamp of approval of what's going on in that event. Listen to Romans 1 for a moment. Romans 1 Paul talks about just the various ways that human sin has ravaged the world, and one of the major issues is homosexuality. And at the end of that uh, explanation, Romans 1, verse 32, Paul says, 
Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Now, all sin warrants death. Certainly, we understand that. But what Paul's saying there is it's also a sin to give approval to those things. And so, dear flock, I would urge you, contrary to what a very famous and faithful, historically faithful pastor said this week, it is not right. It is not good uh, for a Christian to attend a same-sex wedding. Just as the Lord Jesus dignified marriage by His presence at a wedding, if you attend a a same-sex wedding, you give dignity to such an event, and you give your stamp of approval to something that God calls an abomination. And dear ones, I plead with you, if that ever comes up, that you will make up your mind now not to attend. Back to the text. Wine at a festivity like this is a big deal. Don't think of it in terms of an open bar and everybody getting drunk. That probably happened to some extent, but in those days, there simply weren't many beverages available. You didn't have a lot of access to to clean drinking water. You didn't have fruit juices because you didn't have pasteurization, so it would be spoiled by the time you got it. It would have turned into wine by that point anyways. You didn't have sodas. You had very little uh, access to beverages other than water and wine. And so it was a very big deal. It wasn't just a luxury, but an essential when you're showing hospitality to a crowd of this size. Now, let's do another application real quick. Is wine sinful? Is it sinful to drink alcohol? No. Uh, Wine isn't condemned in Scripture. Drunkenness is. Anything that would have mastery over you, uh, we ought to stay away from. But wine is seen in Scripture as a, a sign of prosperity, of blessing, of joy. Uh, Junkiness is a great sin under any circumstances, but to say that alcohol is inherently sinful, as I've heard people in our community do, it not only goes beyond Scripture, but it impugns the Lord Jesus here as he is turning water into wine. Well, not only was wine essential, so they had something to drink, but wine is symbolized in the Old Testament as a picture of joy. Listen to Psalm 4, verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Um, Psalm 104, verse 15, wine gladdens the heart of man. The rabbis in Jesus' day had a saying, without wine there is no joy. Wine is a picture, a symbol of the joy that is ours ultimately in Jesus Christ. And so looking back to John's words here where it says, where Mary comes to Jesus and says they have no wine, we could really translate it, they have no joy. This precious time of life, this wedding, when when their life should be filled with everything that is good, we're being told right now the joy has already run out. You know, what a parable for marriage that is. Without Jesus, the joy of marriage will run out. Couples will have little in common. They will tend to drift away without being built upon Jesus. Or they expect each other to be God to them. But when Christ is central to marriage, joy never runs out. Well, the wine here runs out. Mary comes to the Lord Jesus, asks him to do something about it. She's distressed at this point. A lot of commentators think maybe she was part of the the host, of hosting this wedding. We, We don't know. But she knew Jesus was the Messiah. We don't know if she had ever seen him do anything miraculous. John says this was the first of his signs. Uh, We don't know if she had seen him do anything like this growing up. We we have no idea. 
but maybe she's just hoping he and his friends would go fetch more wine, but she asks him to do something about it. Now, our Lord's response has been the subject of a lot of criticism. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? I don't know if Pastor Walt ever hears me. We have really thin walls between our offices, and I often, when I'm reading these things, I just read it over and over again with emphasis in different places. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Woman, oh, what does this have to do with me? He already thinks I'm crazy. It'll be fine. Some of you are using the NIV, and it says, dear woman. Now, dear is not there. It's added by the editors, but I think it's actually accurate because that word woman, that address like that, is the same word Jesus uses upon the cross when he's speaking to Mary and he is making provision for her after he's gone. This is not a harsh word to her. This is a word of gentleness and care. It didn't have the connotation of rudeness that it would today. You know, no matter how we read this passage, it, it does sort of seem like Jesus rebukes her, doesn't it? Woman, this is not my time. My hour has not yet come. Well, was Jesus being disrespectful? Was he dishonoring his mother? Was he breaking the fifth commandment? Well, the answer is, is no. Because if he did that even one time in his life, he would be a sinner. He would have deserved to die because of his own sin and could not have died for ours. He would not have been resurrected from the dead. He would not be able to enter heaven. He would not be able to intercede for us and you and I would be going to hell because we would have no savior. And so we can be confident that the Lord Jesus did not dishonor his mother here because he is the Messiah. Our hope rests upon the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. I, I love this hymn, upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Our hope rests on that Jesus did not dishonor his mother because we would have no savior and we would still be dead in our sins. So why did our Lord answer that way? Our only hint is at the end of verse four. He says, my hour has not yet come. I said it's a hint. It's not a clear answer, is it? Commentators write a lot about this. Commentators have to write a lot about stuff because they can't just say, we're not exactly sure what that means because nobody buys commentaries that say, we don't know what this means. When Jesus talks about his hour or his time, it's always in view of the cross. Flip with me in, in John's gospel. Look over to John chapter 7. John 7, uh, verse 30, people have shown up to arrest him. Look at verse 30 there. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. It's the same phrase there, the hour had not yet come. Turn over a page, John 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And then John 12 Verse 27, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. In Jesus' mind, everything is moving towards the cross. This would be further intensified in the mind and heart of Jesus as he's there at a wedding. The image of a wedding feast is, is a picture in Scripture of Christ's redemptive work. He, he used the parable of the king who invited 
a people to his son's wedding feast. And he says in Matthew 22, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And so Jesus sees all of life through the lens of the cross and everything is moving towards that direction. And he's thinking, I think at this point, about how the groom would pay for that wedding and how Jesus would soon pay the price upon the cross so that he could receive his bride, the church, and celebrate with us in heaven at the eternal marriage supper. And so in a sense, as Mary is saying, we need you to provide this wine so this wedding might not be ruined, our, our Lord is thinking of a wine of which she knows nothing, of his blood which would flow like wine in order to save us from our sins. We will come back to that because I think this is really the key to understanding this story. We don't know how much Mary understood, but in verse 5, she looked at all the servants and she simply says, do whatever he tells you. She doesn't seem to have been insulted. She was a woman of great faith, recognized his right as the son of God to do whatever he wished, and she knew whatever he did would be right. And then comes the famous miracle. There's, there's six large stone jars there. These were not for drinking. These were used for the various purification, hand-washing rituals of Judaism. That's what those jars were for. So strict Jews would wash their hands before a meal and in between each course. And if you didn't wash your hands, as oftentimes Jesus' disciples didn't follow all of the the rigid traditions of the Pharisees, uh, they were considered unclean. Have you ever wondered, you know, if all that wine has been drunk, why didn't Jesus just use the wine bottles that would, would have been there? Why didn't he use the jugs the wine would have been in? I think that's a very, very important question. See, Jesus is teaching us something intentionally by using these jars, and we're going to come back to that in a moment, but the jars are empty. Jesus tells the servants to fill them with water. They obey, and he tells them to let the master of the feast taste it. We're not told the mechanics of this. We're not told if if as soon as the water went into the jugs, it turned into wine. We're not told if it was as the the servants were were carrying the the ladle to the master. We, We simply don't know, but what we know is that he tastes it, and he's amazed that the good wine was saved for last. Um, I want you to be really careful, dear flock, as you read commentaries on this. Uh, I read a commentary this week. It wasn't anybody that I would recommend to you um, that said, well, Jesus didn't really turn water into wine. There was probably just some, uh, there was probably a little bit of wine left, and he was able to mix it, and and he was just essentially a great heavenly sommelier. I only know that word because Stephanie was watching a Hallmark movie last night and I got to learn that word. That's a wine expert for those of you that don't know it. But I, I, let me give you another example of this. Some of you have William Barclay's commentaries. Um, Reading this week to to do chapel at Holy Trinity and I was assigned the feeding of the 5,000. And Barclay's commentary said, well, Jesus didn't actually multiply the fish and the loaves. What he did was he encouraged sharing. There was a little boy that had the fish and loaves and he said, I'll share. And then other people start saying, well, I'll share too. And then all of a sudden, all these people are bringing out fish and loaves and all these other things and they're sharing with each other. Or you can read other commentaries where uh, we're told, no, Jesus didn't really walk on water. There's a time of year where uh, the Sea of Galilee is very shallow and uh, the wind was blowing just right, so he was able to walk across. Um, sometimes people would rather believe the ridiculous rather than acknowledge Jesus could do the impossible. 
the miracles of Jesus, if it says Jesus turned water into wine, Jesus took water and turned it into wine. And we have no human explanation of how that can happen. And we don't need any human explanation because this is God made flesh. This just proves his divinity. So what actually happened here? Jesus turned water into wine. In fact, he turned water into a lot of wine, 150 to 180 gallons. I think John includes that just to show us the the lavishness of the grace of Jesus Christ. It would have been impressive if he had turned one cup of water into wine, but it's gallon upon gallon of it. It's intended to show us the graciousness of the character of Jesus Christ. That's the situation. Let me give a little bit of an explanation of the bigger picture of what's going on here. What's the point of the whole scene? Is it to show us that Jesus can work miracles? Sure. That's an important part of our faith is that Jesus can do anything. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. And so we can trust the same Jesus who 2,000 years ago turned water into wine. But we don't come to Jesus merely as a miracle-working God. This is one of the problems people have in the Gospels. They just want Jesus' miracles, but they don't want his teaching. They don't want to live their lives in accord with his word. But that's the point of this. Look at verse 11 again. This was the first of his signs. Signs exist to point to something greater. You don't look at a sign and say, that's a great sign. I want to go spend time at that sign. No, you look at the sign and you see what the sign is pointing towards. Jesus' miracles point to something greater. This scene, this miracle, is really an enacted parable. It's a visible parable. What does this sign show us about Jesus and the Gospels? Think about those jars again. I said, why? I asked you, why did Jesus use the ceremonial cleansing jars instead of the wine jars that would have been there? Well, because those ceremonial cleansing jugs were for the hand-washing laws and the many regulations of the old covenant. This is very intentional. Those jugs represent Old Testament ceremonial law, a law that was given as a sign to the people of their need to be cleansed, to be made righteous by the Messiah. The message they communicated or should have communicated, was you can clean up your hands, but you cannot clean up your heart. All those outward rituals, just like the first wine at the feast, they were insufficient to save. But the problem in Jesus' day was that people viewed those outward things as being enough to save them, enough to make them righteous. The Pharisees thought that everything depended on their outward obedience. And how did Jesus rebuke them? One of the things Jesus said to the Pharisees is, you are like dirty bowls. You clean up the outside, but why does the outside matter? You eat out of the inside, and the outside is full of filth. It's the heart that matters, and the law cannot cleanse the heart. And what Christ has done in the gospel is what we ourselves could not do. Water cannot cleanse us from sin, only the blood of Christ can. And using these jugs, our Savior was testifying to us that those Old Testament rituals were dead and that he was filling those jugs with new wine of the gospel. On the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord took wine. What does he say? This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, this miracle at at Cana is a foreshadowing of the end of Old Testament Judaism 
and bringing in of the new covenant in which our sins would be fully, finally, and forever forgiven through the blood of Christ. You know, think about what we're going to see next week, Lord willing. The next passage, Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple. It's immediately connected with this story. Jesus is saying there that ceremonial law and all of the outward trappings of it have come to an end. And he goes to the temple and he shows how wretched things have become. Old Testament Judaism, like the wine, had run its course. The joy was gone. Let me ask you, has that ever happened in your life? Where the joy has run out and you're bored. And you bounce from one thing to the next, hoping it'll satisfy hoping it'll be enough. The, the, the experience of these newlyweds is the experience of universal humanity apart from Christ, that there comes a time when the wine runs out, when the joy, when the novelty, when the exhilaration of this world runs out. But Christ, in the new wine of the gospel, comes to us with a deluge of the greatest possible joy this side of heaven. And this miracle Christ did at the wedding shows us that he can provide joy in overwhelming abundance. When you seek to know Jesus Christ in the power of the gospel, it becomes to your soul the sweetest possible wine, the greatest imaginable joy, and it is one that he loves to give without end and without holding back. You know, the master of the feast tasted the wine and he was amazed. You saved the best for last. Normally, this is when you save, uh, serve the cheap stuff. But that's how the gospel works, dear ones. Do you understand this? The more you seek Jesus Christ, the sweeter he becomes. The more you learn of him, the more wondrous he is to you. Uh, the more you walk with him, the more precious this table becomes, the more it means to you. It's no longer just going through the motions, but it is spiritual nourishment to you. And Jesus, he's always giving us, those who seek him, something better. And he's refining our taste buds so that we no longer enjoy nibbling at the table of this world, but we really long to crave what is served at the table of the Lord. Have you ever tasted that kind of of gospel joy that Jesus serves here, that has neither brim nor bottom? Like wine at the wedding, this world's joys will inevitably run out. But Christ never will, and his joy is available to all who seek him. There were servants that day who saw the glory of Christ's miracle. That didn't save them. What saves is the glory of Christ's atoning work. You know, the atonement, the cross, is far more Glorious than turning water into wine because in the atonement, Christ turns sinners into sons. Rebels into the redeemed. Servants into children. And we receive it not by outward rituals. Not by cleaning ourselves up. But by coming to Jesus and trusting him alone for salvation. And therein we taste a wine, a joy that is sweeter than anything this world can offer. And the more you sample of the table of Jesus Christ, the more wonderful it gets. So that you begin to crave him more and more and more.
And every day with Jesus Christ, no matter what is going on with outward circumstances, every day of seeking him is better than the day before. And he loves to give himself to us in abundance. It was a great feast that day, and one day there will be a greater feast, a banquet the likes of which nobody in this room can fathom. Let me read about it, Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Ah, Don't you long for that day when we'll feast with him? and see him in his glory. Today we come to the banquet table as well. It's not the wedding feast. That'll be in heaven. This is more like the rehearsal dinner. We're getting ready for that future wedding when Christ and his bride will be united forever. Doesn't that sound wonderful? But I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we have to say, how in the world could I ever come to that feast? And probably the ladies in this room would say, what would I wear? But we have to remember, this is not a normal dinner. It's a wedding dinner. In our, in our tradition, it's the bride's family that foots the bill. I have three sons. I love that custom. <laughs> it, who's the bride in this wedding? It, it's the church. How could we ever afford this? We need to understand under Jewish custom, it was the groom's father that footed the bill. How can we come to the table today and how will we come to that future table at all? Our heavenly father has paid for it all by giving his own dear son for us. And what will we wear? We'll wear the righteous robes of the Lord Jesus, gifted to us and received by faith alone. Come to Jesus, dear ones. Uh, Come to Jesus, drink and be satisfied. Let's go to him together now. Lord, we cannot wait for that wedding supper. The likes of which the greatest of feasts will look like a soup kitchen. God, we long for that day, but Until then, you've given us this rehearsal meal. And we come to the table not because of our righteousness, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And we look to him. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would taste the sweetness of this new wine, of the blood of Christ that was shed for our sake. And I pray that the more we come to this table and the more we come to him day by day, the sweeter this meal would be and that the things of earth, the things that so constantly steal our attention and our affection, they would grow strangely dim in our eyes and Jesus would be all to us. Father, we pray that you would bring us to this table 